our first reading tonight is in Psalms. It's Psalm 148. We're going to be reading the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created, and he established them for ever and ever. He issued a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens, and he has raised up for his people a horn, the praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart. Praise the Lord. And the second reading is from John, chapter 8, verses 31 to 38. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you, re- you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we'll be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you're doing what you've heard from your father. Thank you very much, Sarah and John, for reading. Good evening, everyone. It would be good to uh, keep that reading in John's Gospel open, um, in John chapter 8. Uh, page 1074. Uh, there should be plenty of these cards around in the pews. Uh, big questions cards. Uh, do scribble down questions as we're going through or afterwards. Pop them in the, the wooden box or just give it to, uh, to me and Simon afterwards. And um, as Simon said, we'll endeavor to answer those in due course. Um, I imagine there could be all sorts of questions uh, from tonight because I'm very conscious of not being able to cover everything by a long way and just sort of starting a sequence of thoughts uh, for our meditation rather than being able to give you the whole story. And I found that, you, you may know, we did a whole term thinking about relationships and marriage and so on with TNG uh, last term. And in my reading for that, I found biographies, actually Christian testimony, really helpful, as well as just sort of more theoretical stuff. And this week I've been reading this book, 
by Jackie Hill Perry. It's called Gay Girl Good God, which is quite hard to say. Um, and it really is extremely good. I found it so helpful. So for the sorts of themes I start to look at this evening, if you want to just read it in a lived-out testimony, uh, this book was extremely good, very encouraging to read, and so I do commend that. Shall we pray then as we um, look at this question and uh, see what John has to show us? Lord God, we pray for your wisdom this evening. Please give us teachable hearts. Please be at work in us. You free us from sin. You, you free us from wrong thinking and from our idols, from those things we would be tempted to worship instead of you. And we pray that you would be at work in us and setting us free from anything that would be holding us back. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So the question is, isn't Christianity sexually repressive? And at first, time, at first sight, it might seem a bit of an open and shut case. If the Bible teaches that sex is God's gift for a man and a woman in marriage, which I contend it does, then that is, at the very least, restrictive, isn't it? It is setting a boundary, and if you are outside of that boundary for what could be a whole number of reasons, then the Bible is saying no to sex, and that sounds, at the very least, restrictive. But for a lot of people, they'd say it's much worse than that, not merely restrictive, but repressive. If we all lived as Christians um, say we should in this area, then aren't you stopping a great number of people from being able to flourish as human beings because they can't fully express their humanity? Therefore, Christianity is sexually repressive. That would be the argument, I guess that's how it could be put. That's the case we've got to answer. Now let me address one thing before I go on, because as soon as I said the Bible's position uh, is that sex is God's gift to be enjoyed by one man and one woman in marriage, even if you agreed with that, you might have been thinking, well, yeah, but isn't it just an interpretation of the Bible? Maybe you could argue the Bible says something different. Or maybe you could say, the Bible does say that, but it was just reflecting a culture rather than communicating a norm for the rest of us to live by. And there is not time to address that in any depth at all. And in the end, I think, when you look into it, you just have to go digging into the scriptures for yourself and come to a judgment. But I will share the testimony of someone who did dig into the scriptures and came to a judgment which I think carries particular weight here, and that is Rosaria Butterfield. This is a copy of her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Also very much recommend that. Now, she used to be a gay activist and an English professor in New York specializing in queer theory. And then she became a Christian, started digging into the scriptures, and she writes this. A Methodist pastor told me that since God made me a lesbian, I gave God honor by living an honorable lesbian life. He told me that I could have Jesus and my lesbian lover. 
This was a very appealing prospect. But I had been reading and rereading scripture, and there are no such marks of postmodern both and in the Bible, all right? English professor specializing in queer theory. That is pretty strong testimony that this is actually what the Bible says. Sex is God's gift to be enjoyed in a marriage between one man and one woman. But let's come back to our main task. How do we answer the charge? That is repressive. Well, from what we read in John chapter 8 and what Jesus said there, we ought to be able to stand the charge on its head and say, no, actually, the Bible standard for what we do with our sexuality, that is, how we experience and express um, our sexual being, sexual feelings, that is freeing, and the world standard is repressive. We ought to be able to say that from what Jesus has said here, because the fundamental thing Jesus wants us to understand is that before he sets us free to live for him, we are slaves to sin. We are all repressed, not flourishing as human beings. And not just in a special sort of religious part of us, like all the lights in the house can be on except in that room. Totally, we are not flourishing as human beings until Jesus sets us free. That's the claim. So the expression of our sexuality becomes an example of that general point, if the general point is true, that living according to the Bible's view of sex, whether that means we're having sex because we're married or we're not having sex because we're not married, is actually the freeing thing. And not living by that standard is to be repressed, which may just sound completely bizarre, like how can you possibly argue that? Even if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, yeah, really? But it may just be that this is the issue that shows up whether your eyes are really fully open to the glory of the gospel. And to the non-Christian, I guess in a way, this doesn't make any sense at all, which is a pretty bad thing to say in what's essentially an apologetics exercise. (laughs) But hopefully to consider this is like looking through a portal into another world and another way of doing things and to see that actually what they had thought of as a load of repressive nonsense actually has some integrity about it. And then the prayer is that a non-believer would then take that step further and see that that way of life, which they may be argued into accepting, has some coherence is actually persuasively attractive because the God behind it is irresistibly attractive. And that, of course, is a prayer for the Lord Jesus to set them free. So two points this evening from John chapter 8. We'll just take the two points as general points and then apply them throughout in terms of our sexuality. Number one, Jesus frees us from being slaves to sin. Number two, Jesus frees us for being worshippers of God. First point, Jesus frees us from being slaves to sin. 
Now that little snippet we had read out from John chapter 8 is from a much longer conversation that Jesus had with some people when he was at a feast in Jerusalem. And you read through the conversation, you can see that people are divided um, about who he was. And some of them were resolutely opposed to him. And it had just said many believed in him. But as it turns out, as you read on, not believed in him in a very strong sense. You get the impression that maybe they had thought, oh, there might just be something in what Jesus is saying here, but that they're not fully committing. Something's still holding them back. And I guess that's why Jesus goes on into the subject of what holds us back. Ultimately, that we are slaves to sin and that we need to be set free verse 32, by the truth. Or to put it another way, in verse 36, you need to be set free by the Son, by Jesus, because we're slaves to sin. And that kind of language just helps us to appreciate how deep a problem sin is. It's not just a list of outward bad behavior that I do, like I sinned at quarter past four this afternoon, but thereafter I've been okay. It's a fundamental disposition of the heart. There is a God who created me and all his ways are good. But I don't want to be told. I don't want to be told what's right and what's valuable and what's good. I think I know better. And it goes all the way back to Eden. And it's madness, of course. I don't know better. But that is what happens, isn't it? And it means that my thinking and my values and my commitments are all messed up in every sense, including my approach to sexuality. And I'm enslaved to this unless Jesus sets me free, even if I wanted to escape. How do you run away from the slave master when the slave master is in your own heart? You can't do it. And even worse than that, Jesus says, unless, unless he opens my eyes, I don't really believe there's a problem. That is anything beyond what I could solve with a bit of mindfulness or self-improvement. These people here in verse 33, you can see it with them. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say we, we shall be set free? They don't recognize there's a problem. That's what it is to be slaves to sin. Now, how do we see that in terms of the expression of our sexuality? Well, in many, many ways, and we can only just about scratch the surface. There are obvious examples, just as we look at our behavior. You look at people's behavior, you can see there are hearts there that are enslaved to sin. The person who sleeps with one person after another and is kind of addicted to it. They are expressing their sexuality prodigiously. But they are slaves. They go from one to the other. They damage other people. and They render their own hearts immune to pain and incapable of love. Are they free? The person who finds the allure of online images irresistible, are they free? The person whose eyes linger on every other attractive person on the way to work, or who daydreams about a liaison that would be wrong, 
or whose mind is flooded with completely unrealizable fantasy as they lie in bed, or the person who feels they have to flaunt their sexuality in the way that they dress or behave around others in service of other idols like power or security or just social acceptance, and it can start at an alarmingly young age. In what sense could you say that that represents hearts that are free? All these examples and more throw up a really serious question. This side of the 1960s, how sexually liberated people really are. And that's just surface behavior. We can go deeper and think about our thinking. What is the state of our culture's thinking on this matter? Is there false thinking from which we need to be released, freed? And again, that's a huge topic. You could probably identify several strands of false thinking. I've recommended this book a couple of times um, called Love Thy Body by Nancy Percy. It's a really helpful book, I found it, for considering how modernist and postmodernist thinking has led us, for a lot of people, to drawing something of quite a hard divide between body and mind, and placing far more meaning and significance and moral value in the mind rather than with the body. So that when we think about what it means to be a person, it becomes something far more to do with the mind than with the body. And people will argue, as a couple of for instances, that it is going to be my mind which is decisive in determining my gender, or another example, that you may have a fetus, which is a human being, but may not be a person, because it has not yet achieved certain cognitive abilities. It's quite alarming how mainstream that last argument has become. And here, too, in the realm of sexuality, that body-mind distinction has implications, because have you ever heard it said, well, what does it matter what we do with our bodies? What moral significance could that possibly have if it doesn't hurt anyone else and there is consent? Surely it can't have any significance. doesn't matter at all. It certainly couldn't have any teleological significance. That is, it's not pointing to anything. There's no great end or purpose. It's not pointing to anything beyond itself. And that leads to justification for all sorts of expressions of sexuality. Encounters with whoever you like, male or female, one or many, so long as it's consensual, because what does it matter what we do with our bodies? Now, apparently Pope John Paul II was onto this in a big way. He gave lots of lectures back in the 70s and 80s, got turned into a massive work called Theology of the Body. It's on my Amazon wish list, if you're needing to look for presents in the next few months. And he said, no, your body is significant. And it cannot be separated from who you are as a person. You are a body-person unit. And what you do with your body does have moral significance. It is significant before God. And it does point to something 
beyond itself. So if you are totally naked and vulnerable before another person and you give your body to that person and have sex with them, that means something. It cannot be a morally neutral act or just a recreational activity. Like, what shall I do this evening? I could watch TV or go to the gym or just have sex with someone. It means something. Having sex is meant to be an expression that you are giving yourself entirely to another person. This is straying into my second point. It's an expression of covenant that points to the covenant God makes with us in Christ. And actually, when you live as though what you do with your body has no real significance, you still end up unleashing the binding effect that sex does have, even at a biochemical level. Only it binds you to paths that are harmful to others and harmful to self. But try telling that to modern culture, and what will you hear? No, we know what we're talking about. We can say what's right and wrong. And even if the pattern seems to be at the moment that what one generation thinks of as right and wrong, the next generation thinks of as hopelessly conservative, we're still pretty sure that we're in the generation that's got it about right. Because in the end, the thing in our thinking that has never changed since Eden and from which we desperately need to be freed in every respect, including our sexuality, is this. I know best. And we do not know best. Hands up, anyone who has designed and created a universe. We do not know best. We need Jesus to free us from that delusion in our thinking. But our freedom is about more than what we're freed from. And this is to get into our second point, what we're freed for. Jesus frees us for being worshippers of God. And we worship him with everything that we are, which includes how we live out our sexuality, whether that is within marriage where we're having sex or not in marriage where we're not. And that's why I wanted to read out um, Psalm 148, that wonderful psalm that just gives you that sense that everything in creation is made for the glory and the praise of God. That's what we're here for, to delight in God. And that that is ultimately what this freedom is, as you read on in John, the stuff we're going through in our home groups at the moment. That freedom becomes delighting in the joyful beauty of God, as amazingly we're kind of drawn into the joy and the beauty of God. So the question becomes how we worship God in the living out of our sexuality. And that will be the freeing thing, because worshipping God is to be free. Liberating a heart to worship God is like letting a bird out of a cage and teaching it to sing. And just two thoughts, or the beginnings of two thoughts to offer here. One is in how we image God. 
So back in Genesis 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And of course, that means that as individuals, we bear the image of God, and that's the primary sense, and you can spend a long time thinking about what that means. But I think a case can also be made for a together aspect as well. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, together, complementing each other in marriage, shows us something of the image of God and thereby aids us in our worship. Now, in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 18, where God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him, the word for suitable means something along the lines of like opposite to. I will make a helper like opposite to him. Like him, but different. And in Genesis 2.24, the key verse on marriage in the Bible that gets picked up many times, when it says the man and his wife became one flesh, one, same word as in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why am I telling you these random facts? To give a sense that a man and a woman uniting together in marriage, what do you have? You have a love between two people who are like each other, but who are different and who are one. Now, what does that remind you of? The Trinity. Unity in difference. Love. It's quite amazing, isn't it? There is something about the way we image God in a man and a woman coming together in marriage. And you can kind of develop that image as the love at the heart of marriage, we will say, is to overflow in blessing to others. Yeah, just like the love of the God who is three in one overflows in blessing. One of those blessings, of course, being the gift of life. Do you see how deeply disruptive it is to humanity's worship of God to tamper with that ordering in any way? And it's why God has set things up for children, by and large, to grow up in that environment that images him to them and dramatizes the gospel, which is the second point how our sexuality points us to the true marriage for which we're all made, which is between Christ and the church. That's what Ephesians 5 picks up that idea and runs with it, that the meaning of one man and woman, one woman coming together in marriage and also in sex, is actually a mystery. It's been a mystery to people over the years, but revealed what it's really about, what it's really pointing us to, is Christ and the church. So that the expression of our sexuality in this life is, well, perhaps for those who are married, to increase our delight in our Savior, and if we're not married, to increase our anticipation in the knowledge of his sufficiency 
and to increase our desire for him so that when we see him face to face, that's what we're looking forward to. And that, therefore, is good news for the married couple who have a healthy sex life as well as for person who's in a marriage who maybe doesn't think it's a healthy sex life and for those who are unmarried. Sex is a good thing, perhaps supremely because of what it is pointing us towards rather than the experience in and of itself. So that when Jesus says there will be no marriage in heaven, when he answered the Sadducees in that last week before the cross, and therefore one would guess no sexual activity, that ought not to make us think, well, I better get some before I die then. Sex is not an ultimate thing. The idea that it is, is another strand of thinking that we need to be freed from. It is pointing to the ultimate thing. Our relationship with Christ is the ultimate thing. The joy and delight of that, are you ready for this? The joy and delight of that will be better than any orgasm you ever have and last a lot longer as well. And you see it that way. Whatever your situation in life is, doesn't that move your heart to worship? Doesn't it move your heart to joyful anticipation the consummation of that great marriage. Is Christianity sexually repressive? No. Christianity is the news of how Jesus frees us from slavery to sin and frees us for the worship of God. It is sexually, as in all other aspects of what it means to be human, liberating. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you set us free, that you have died for us to pay the penalty of our sin and that you come to us in your spirit and kindle in our hearts love for you that overflows in love for others. We thank you that you set us free from sin which we could not have done ourselves. And we pray that you would help us to live in the power of your resurrection, to live out that freedom which you give us in every area of our lives and in every aspect of our being. We pray this for your glory. Amen.